He was a man of faith, a community leader, a religious leader, a synagogue leader, someone people saw as faithful and blessed and strong. How could he show weakness? How could he reveal his need in a public way? There was too much shame, and it reminded him of something deep in his soul that constantly told him, perhaps you are unworthy. How could he turn to this rabbi that many were calling a heretic and a liar? How could he not just be weak but show this weakness to everyone? He had never been vulnerable like this before. He'd he'd never shown weakness like this to the public. But on this day, there was something deeper, something stronger than his pride, and it was pushing him. It drove him. It drove him out to the road, and he found himself standing there in front of what felt like the whole town, asking for that thing he had so often prided himself in never needing. Help. Jesus, he said, it's my daughter. And there's nothing I can do. I'm not strong enough. I need you. I need help. Her story was different. Pride had departed from her soul long ago and been systematically replaced with isolation and desperation and hopelessness. For the last 12 years, she had been unclean, uncomfortable, uncomforted. The trips to the priests and doctors and healers had all come up empty and there was nowhere else to turn. The hours upon hours she and her family had spent praying, the tears she had watched her mother weep as they cried out to God over and over again with nothing but silence in return. Years of these moments had left her detached, distant, depressed, with a thick callous of shame covering over her hopes and dreams to insulate them from the harsh reality of rejection she had become accustomed to. Oh, she'd heard about Jesus. She'd heard about the miracles, about the love, about the acceptance of people who were unclean like her, but she wasn't sure she could believe it. Wasn't sure if she could allow herself to hope again, to be disappointed again, devastated again. Then she heard he was there, passing through her town, and without even thinking, she found herself moving towards the crowd that surrounded him. Everything in her said, turn back, who do you think you are? But something pulled her forward until there she was, on the ground, crawling through their legs, in the dirt, amidst a sea of people reaching out that she might just touch the hem of his robe. Friends, this morning we are continuing our series called Overthrown, and in this series we're looking at things in this world that want to hold us back from living the abundant life that Jesus longs for you and me. And at the heart of this entire series, at the core of every single one of these messages, is this message. You do not have to live this way. You do not have to be controlled by fear. You do not have to live with envy. You do not have to be consumed with worry. You don't have to answer to anger. You don't have to be held hostage by hatred and bitterness because Jesus has won the victory and he offers you another way. A way of peace and freedom and life and hope and meaning and joy and security. 
It's available to you. You see, this series is about how the cross has overthrown the forces of evil in this world and the defeated force that we are discussing today is none other than shame. Shame. It's being called an epidemic in our culture these days and it's perhaps one of the most evil, damning, damaging forces any of us will ever face. Shame isn't something we like to talk about much. It isn't something we do talk about all that often. And so we don't always know exactly what it is. People tend to think shame is just an extreme form of embarrassment or or guilt. But while guilt can produce shame, shame at its core is something altogether different. You see, guilt says... I did something bad. Shame says, I am something bad. You see, guilt or conviction says something is wrong. Shame says, I am wrong. You see, shame is about failure failure that has infiltrated your soul and attached itself to your identity. It's about sin and brokenness in this world that has come not just to mark you, but to define you. Shame weighs on you and it drags your life down in ways that many of us don't even realize or understand. Research is staggering when it comes to this. There is such a strong correlation between shame and things like addiction, depression, violence, aggression, bullying, suicide, eating disorders. The list goes on. Now, what's interesting is that guilt something else we don't really like, actually has an inverse relationship to many of these things. Well, while shame seems to attach itself to these things and drive these things, guilt has the opposite effect. And it's not that we like guilt, we don't like guilt, we're often uncomfortable with it, but research says that it works. It works to move us towards change and transformation. It works to help us become the person God wants us to be. Guilt, or a better word I like, conviction, Helps. It's good to feel bad about something you have done wrong is good. To feel conviction that God created you to be different, to act different, to be treated different. That's positive. See, even the secular world is starting to see and embrace the positive impact of guilt and conviction. Here's another definition, though, of shame. The feeling that there is something about me that makes me unworthy of connection. Shame is the intensely painful feeling that we are unworthy, unworthy of love, unworthy of belonging. Christian counselor Ed Welch says, shame is the deep sense that you are inherently flawed unacceptable and unworthy of love because of something you've done, something done to you, or something associated with you. Shame says you're defective, you're damaged, you're broken, you're flawed, you're dirty, ugly, impure, disgusting, unlovable, you're weak, pitiful, insignificant, worthless, and unwanted. And if you have significant shame in your life, you are either painfully aware of these feelings Or, you have pushed these feelings so far down that you don't even know to the extent to which they are driving your life. 
So today we'll talk about shame, and to do this, we're going to look at a story in the Gospel of Luke about two people, two people who are dealing with shame and how an encounter with Jesus overthrows shame's power in their lives. Luke chapter 8, we're going to start in verse 40. This is what Luke tells us. When Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. Then a man named Jairus, a synagogue leader, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house because his only daughter, a girl of about 12, was dying. Mostly this morning, we are going to talk about a woman, but we're going to start our conversation about shame with this man, Jairus, because Jairus is not a person we typically picture when we think about shame. We're told that Jairus is the synagogue leader, and this means that in this little town, he was a pretty big deal. To be the synagogue leader in a small Jewish town means that you were the pastor, the mayor, and the school principal all wrapped into one, one enormous role of importance. This is a respected, successful, highly esteemed man. And here's something you may not understand about shame. It can often lead to the pursuit of success, perfectionism, and religiosity. In fact, research shows that one of the ways we respond to shame and attempt to overcome our shame is through what's called flawless performance. Pastor Craig Rochelle talks about this. He says, because shame tries to tell us we are worthless, we believe that if we perform at the highest standards, we will be able to say, their shame, I did it, I proved it, I exceeded expectations, and therefore I have worth after all. You see, one of our responses to shame is to outwork shame, to outperform shame. Friends, this is why religion pairs so beautifully with shame. Because if I can be religious... If I can be religious enough, if I can be holy enough, if I can be moral enough, then I'll certainly prove myself worthy to other people, to God, and even to myself. This is why when Jesus encounters and speaks with the religious leaders, time and time again, he's telling them this truth. You look so good on the outside, but on the inside, you're rotting. You're like whitewashed tombs, he says. Outside you look real good. Outside you look perfect. You're achieving. You're successful. But on the inside, something is deeply wrong. And I wonder how many of them were motivated and driven by shame. Here's another thing Pastor Groeschel says. He says, people suffering from shame are really hard on themselves because they nurse a deep dislike of who they are, which makes them hard on everyone else too. When they see their own faults mirrored in other people, they become really judgmental as a type of self-loathing. Now think about the religious leaders in Jesus' day. People who Jesus says are rotten on the inside, and yet there was no one more judgmental of the sinful people on the outside than these guys. And I wonder how much of it was driven by shame. Friends, maybe you're here today and on the outside, much like Jairus, you look good. You're a winner. You're successful. And yet deep 
down inside the thing that drives you in ways that you may not even be aware of all the time is shame. Shame about something that happened to you. Shame about something you've done or are doing. Shame about something from your childhood. And maybe that shame is so powerful that subconsciously you have decided not to deal with it, to push it down, and to cover it up. To cover it up with religion, with success, by refusing to fail, to cover it up by being the best. Maybe you've decided to cover it up by determining to never be dependent on other people again. And man, I'll talk to you for just a second because you might be particularly susceptible here. Because research shows that that while shame is an equal opportunity offender, it affects everybody in the human race. In fact, here's what research says. The only people not susceptible to shame, the only people alive who don't experience shame on some level are people unable to experience human connection and intimacy. If you're not in that category, then shame is something you'll wrestle with. And so shame is an equal opportunity offender for all of us, and yet... At its core, at its cause, the root of shame is different often for men and women. For women in our world, shame mostly comes from this sense that they can never live up to the myriad of competing expectations that society puts on you. A famous shame researcher, Brene Brown, says, uh, tells the story. She says, the best illustration of this is a commercial from uh, back in the early 90s. Some of you might remember it if you're my age or older. And it was a woman all dressed up in in nice clothes and like a business suit looking really professional. And she sings this song. It went, went, I'm a woman. Do you remember this? I I can bring home the bacon. I can fry it up in a pan. Pastor Ashley is saying, quit singing. Don't sing that song. I'm not a woman. But, but the message of this commercial was, I am a woman. I can do it all. I can have a job and make the home run good. I can be professional and strong and sweet and sensitive. And by the way, I, I can be sexy and pretty and strong and confident and beautiful and vulnerable and weak, all wrapped into one. And this perfume will help me accomplish it, right? <laughs> and, and Brene Brown says, I'm not sure that, perf- that commercial sold much perfume, but it certainly put a lot of women in counseling Because no one can live up to these standards. And so women in our world deal with shame because they do not live up to all the expectations our world puts on them. But men, men are different. We are often much simpler creatures. And so most often shame for us is rooted in just one thing. Weakness. To feel or be perceived as weak. That's the root of shame often for men. And now we know why it's such a big deal for Jairus, this leader and ruler who's used to being in control, who's accustomed to feeling powerful and strong. And now in this moment he has to come and fall at Jesus' feet and say, I need Help, I can't do it. I am weak. And everyone can see it. And so I wonder how much shame he's dealing with. As Jesus, verse 42, was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. 
You see, here's what's tricky about shame. Sometimes it comes from something we've done, but often, often the root of shame is something that's been done to us. In fact, research shows that the most powerful forms of shame often come from things that we have no control over, things that we've just experienced or been through, through no fault of our own. Abuse, abandonment, neglect, bullying. One author says, there are specific memories we can recall that will bring up shame for us, but there are also insidious, quiet messages that we just marinate in over a lifetime. Messages that are maybe the root of your story. Maybe, maybe for you, your shame is rooted in an event or in a series of event, events. Or, or maybe for you, it's a message that you got from your parents or from your teachers or from friends growing up. And that message has just lodged itself deep into your mind. And it just calls to you and constantly tells you who you are and who you are not. You see, that's this woman Subject to bleeding is just a polite way of saying she had a disease that produced an uncontrollable menstrual flow, which meant that not only was she sick and likely suffering from chronic pain, she was also, according to Jewish law, ceremonially unclean. This means that she had largely lived without being touched and being excluded from community for 12 years. For 12 years, she's been isolated. For 12 years, she's been alone. And it's starting to have an impact. It's starting to impact her identity. It's starting to impact how she even thinks about herself. And we can see this in the story. You'll notice that this woman is not even given a name. Luke is very intentional in the way he recounts this scene. What he's telling us is this. People no longer even see her as a person. She doesn't even have a name. She's just the bleeding woman. She's just an outcast. She's just untouchable. She's just lonely. And remember, friends, at one point, this was a little girl who had so many hopes and dreams. Marriage, family, friends, life in a community. All those seem over now. All those dreams killed and covered up by her new identity, the bleeding woman, the unclean lady. And the years and years of the looks that she's received and the responses she's gotten have shaped her now. Even the way she thinks of herself. Remember how we said shame is when sin and brokenness come, not just to mark you, but to define you. Friends, our identities are so sticky you see, you have an identity, you have this thing of the this, this central part of you, who you really are, and it's a sticky thing. There are a lot of things in this world that want to come and stick to your identity, that want to come and take over your identity, that want to move in and define you, and some of those things can be good, and some of those things can be bad. I'll never forget when I was in middle school, and uh, my best friend in middle school, he was really a great kid, but somewhere along the way, he gave me a nickname, I've talked about this before, he started calling me Doughboy because I was a little pudgy in middle school. And I think we were at a swim party once and I had my shirt off and he started calling me Doughboy and it kind of stuck. And that, those comments, those innocent, just sort of playful, teasing 
comments worked their way into my identity to the point where I wouldn't ever really take my shirt off, especially not in front of girls. All the way up and even through college. Even in college when I was playing basketball three hours a day and there was like, and I had like one and a half percent body fat. I know, it's hard to believe. But <laughs> even then, I did not want to take my shirt off because deep in my identity was this. You're pudgy, you're fat, you're chunky. Stuff like that just sticks to us. It just works its way in. And it won't let go. Friends, let me ask you today, is there some hurt? Is there some pain? Is there some sin and some brokenness in your life, some abuse from your past that is clouding how you see yourself? That is trying to inform you about who you really are? That's causing you to feel unworthy of the love and acceptance God has created you to receive? Do you got some shame brewing in your soul these days? This woman does. And we're told in verse 44 that she came up behind Jesus and touched the edge of his cloak. And immediately her bleeding stopped. You see, friends, healing from shame always involves an initial step of faith, of courage, an initial risk, taking the chance to come out of hiding. We know that during Jesus' time here, there was a legend that when the Messiah came to earth, he would be so powerful. This is what the Jews of the first century believed, that when Messiah came, he would be so powerful. There would be so much healing power in his personhood that even the wings, even the edge, even the fringe of his garments would possess healing power. And so this woman, with all options exhausted, with nothing left to lose, creeps through the crowd and crouches down into the dirt and stretches out that she might just touch the edge of his cloak thinking maybe, just maybe, maybe, just maybe, this would work. Brene Brown says, shame has two main slogans, two main phrases it wants to remind you of constantly. One, you're not good enough. You're not good enough. And number two, who do you think you are? See, that's what shame says to you. And I can only imagine these two statements were running through this woman's mind as she crawled through the crowd to get to Jesus. You're not good enough. You're not good enough for the Messiah. Who do you think you are? How do you think he's going to respond to you? Who do you think you are going anywhere near him? You're nothing but an unclean woman. Now what's interesting about this story is is the actual lack of focus on her physical healing. Luke doesn't really camp out here. I mean, she's been bleeding for 12 years. She's been suffering for 12 years. Luke tells us that she's seen every doctor, every physician, every healer, and nothing, nothing has helped. Yet in this story, she's healed. And it gets only one small line, one small statement. And then we move on. You see, the focus of this story is not this woman's physical healing. Luke puts the focus of this story on her secrecy. That's what this story is about. How she comes up, where? From behind Jesus, so he won't see her. In the midst of a crowd, so she can be anonymous. Next we read Jesus' response. Who touched me? 
it says Jesus asked. Now, I don't know if you know anything about Jesus, but he's not often stumped, is he? Most of the time when Jesus asks these sorts of questions, it's not because he doesn't know the answer. It's because he's trying to make a point, such as the case here. You see, again, the focus of this story is not, will this woman get healed? The focus of this story is, will this woman come out of hiding? And friends, that is very significant because where there is silence and secrecy, shame thrives. Best-selling author and shame researcher Brene Brown says, if you put shame in a Petri dish and douse it with a little silence and a little secrecy, it will grow like wildfire. And so to talk, to share, to come out of hiding and to be vulnerable is a real powerful thing. To come out of hiding about the places where you feel shame can be transformational, but it's not easy. Not when you've been hurt, not when you feel weak, not when people have proven themselves time and time again to be cruel and unreliable. But Jesus knows that this is the only way, and so he asks her, he invites her, will you step into vulnerability? Will you trust me? Well, before she can respond, guess who chimes in? Of course, Peter, right? He's always chiming in. Here's what he says. It says, when they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing against you. In other words, how in the world... Could we tell who was touching you? Lots of people were touching you. We're never going to figure this out. And friends, let me say this to you. There will always be that moment. That moment right before you decide, I'm going to do it. I'm going to come out of hiding. I'm going to talk about that thing I feel so much shame about with my friend. I'm going to open up tonight. I'm going to say it or share it in my group tomorrow. There will always be that moment right before vulnerability that the enemy will come and he will create doubt and fear. He may use a comment from another person, maybe even a friend. He may use something you hear on TV. He may just use the voice inside of your own head. In this case, he uses another follower of Jesus. But friends, here's the truth. There's always going to be pushback. Push back to that moment when you walk up to the edge of vulnerability and then suddenly you think, why am I doing this? This does not seem fun. This does not seem smart. The risk is too big. The consequence is too real. What if they laugh? What if they don't understand? What if they tell someone else? What if they judge me or reject me or simply slowly pull away because their opinion of me will change forever after they know about this? You see, friends, have you ever experienced this on the front edge of vulnerability? You see, we talk a lot about vulnerability in the church. And sometimes, I, I guess I do think we are vulnerable. But there are layers to vulnerability. It's not like I am vulnerable or I'm not vulnerable. Like there, there are some things that are hard to talk about that you feel sort of vulnerable about. And then there are some things that you feel really vulnerable about. And let me tell you what, friends, this is where shame lives, right over here. 
right in the middle of those things that make you feel really insecure and really unsafe and really vulnerable, the sorts of things that you're not telling anyone ever, not even your husband, not your wife, maybe not even your best friend. You see, that's vulnerable vulnerability. And friends, here's the truth. It takes tremendous courage to be vulnerable. And the more vulnerable you feel, the more courage it requires. You see, we live in a culture that sometimes associates vulnerability with weakness. And yet I'm here to tell you, vulnerability is nothing but pure courage. To step out into a space where you feel revealed and exposed and there are no guarantees, that takes courage of another kind. And before you decide to share with someone about a place in your life where you experience shame, before you do that, you will always have to go through this gut check moment. And Peter all but gives this woman a way out. He gives her the perfect excuse to just slink back into the crowd and to go home without anyone even knowing she was there. How can we know Jesus who touched you? But Jesus says again, someone touched me. I know that power has gone out from me. You see, in those moments when being vulnerable and exposing our shame is hard and we're tempted to run, Jesus is always there encouraging us and reminding us, go for it. Trust me, you can do it. There is victory and peace and freedom and hope if you will just come out of hiding. Friends, over and over again, the scriptures tell us that essential to experiencing the help and healing our souls desperately need is safe, authentic, Christ-centered community. Because if, if silence and secrecy are what shame feed on, Jesus knows vulnerability is what, ki what kills shame. Did I say that wrong? If shame feeds on silence, silence and secrecy, I'm having trouble with this part, um, I'm being vulnerable, uh, Jesus knows that vulnerability kills shame. Let me ask you, friends, do you have a place in your life where it's safe to take the courageous risk of being vulnerable? Not just this kind of vulnerability, this kind of vulnerability. Do you have a safe space, a safe person, some safe people in your life where you can take the courageous step of being vulnerable even about the places in your life where you experience shame. You see, we believe every human heart needs this. This is why here at Cedar Mill, one of our seven core distinctives is relate authentically because we know that God uses transparency for transformation and that you can never fully become the person God longs for you to be if you stay in hiding and if no one fully knows you. And it will take some work to find that person, to find that place, but the work is worth it. I am not suggesting today that you just find somebody in the lobby and say, hey, let me tell you some things. That's not what I'm suggesting. You do need to do the work of finding that right group, that right place, that right person. But let me tell you this, friends. There, there is... No person out there who's 100% fail-safe. If you're waiting for that moment where you don't feel any vulnerability to be vulnerable, then you'll never be vulnerable. Where there's 100% guarantee that they won't judge you or think differently about you and you won't have any doubt and fear. If you're waiting for that moment, you're going to be waiting forever because it doesn't exist, not on this side of heaven. 
Friends, it takes some work to find the right place and the right people, but the, worth, the work is worth it. A great place to start are some ministries here in our church. One's called Soul Care. Some people have just been trained to listen and heal and help. We've got a ministry called Mending the Soul that we've talked about here a lot, a place where vulnerability is encouraged. Another ministry called Celebrate Recovery, where people are as real and honest as you'll find. Men get with some other men, women get with some other women, and start the work of getting real and moving towards vulnerability. Maybe you do have to start here. Maybe you just need to start here and see how it feels. But begin the process of working towards this place where you can be honest and transparent, even about the places in life where you experience shame. Jesus says, I know someone touched me. It says in verse 47, the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. In the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. You see, Jesus has healed this woman's bleeding, but he doesn't want her to go home until she's found healing for something more. Healing, not just for her bleeding, but healing for her shame. And what happens next might be one of the most profound moments in the entire New Testament because it answers one of the most basic questions of every human heart. What is it like to be exposed in all of our shame and all of our ugliness and all of our mess before the God of the universe? What does it look like to be vulnerable, not just with another person, but before God himself? Verse 48, Then Jesus said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. You see, if at the core of shame is the message, you're wrong, you're unworthy, you're unlovable, you're unacceptable, you are defined by the brokenness and sin you have experienced, then Jesus' message here is simple and yet significant. He says to her, daughter, daughter, not Ma'am or missus or lady or stranger, he says, daughter. Tim Keller says we should probably read it something like sweetheart or princess or darling. You see, he skips right over knowing her name, and now he's into the pet name phase. He's saying that's the kind of relationship we have. That's who you really are. And in this moment, it's as if Jesus is sending a very clear message both to her and the crowd and the entire world. When you come to me... I will take that shame that wants to hijack your identity and I will restore you into who you were created to be. My daughter, my son. You see, even in light of that shame you're carrying, that's how your heavenly father thinks of you. He doesn't see that shame. He sees right through it. He looks right past it. He knows who you were created to be. And some of you need to be reminded of that today. But the question is how? How? How does it happen that instead of being marked by shame or defined by shame, we are defined as God's kids, his daughters and sons? How does this woman go from unclean and full of shame to clean and shame-free? You see, what we'll discover in the rest of Luke's gospel is that this woman's shame hasn't just disappeared. 
It's not just sort of gone. It's not just floated off into the atmosphere. It's actually been transferred. It's gone from her to Jesus. And it's an amazing thing to think about this for just a second because most of the time in the world, and this is a timely illustration, Dr. Andy, um, it's the unclean in our world that, it, that infects the clean, right? When unclean and clean meet, what happens? Clean gets unclean. This is why if you have a dry cough, we're asking you to worship from home and listen to the podcast because you'll infect others. Unclean infects, affects clean, infects clean. But in this story, that's not how it works. Jesus is clean and she is unclean. Now she's clean, but guess what? That's because her uncleanliness has been transferred to Christ. It's been transferred to Jesus. He now takes on her brokenness, her sin, her shame, the uncleanness in her life. He's absorbed it. He's taking it on. But he's not just taking it. He's taking it someplace. He's taking it to the cross. That's where he's taking it. There's a destination for her shame. There's a destination for her, her brokenness. And Jesus is carrying it down that road. You know, what's interesting about Brene Brown's six-year research on shame is that in the end, she came to one big conclusion. Just one, one main conclusion. And she says this. She says, in the end, the big difference between people who have the power to overcome shame and people who don't, people who have a sense of worthiness, even amidst brokenness and hurt and pain and shame, and folks who struggle to have a sense of worthiness, she says there's only one real variable that separates these two groups of people. The people who have a strong sense of love and belonging believe they are worthy of love and belonging. The others don't. They believe they're worthy. That's the big difference. One group believes they're worthy, and another group doesn't believe they're worthy, can't believe they're worthy, can't come to a place where they believe and feel worthy. And so the question is, how do I get from this group to this group? How do I, how do I become a person who believes they're worthy? How can I believe that I am truly worthy of love and trust and acceptance? Because here's the truth, friends. The reality is when I look at my life, if I'm honest, I can see that I'm not worthy. I can see all the stuff in me that some of you don't see. I can see all the mess-ups. I can see all the sin. I can see all the hurt. I can hear all the voices. I can see all the junk. And I can pretend it's not there and I can push it down, but it's still there. I can try and convince myself through the power of positive thinking that I'm worthy, but the reality is there's some stuff here that I've got to deal with, and it's telling me, Dave, you're not worthy. So what do I do with this junk? Someone has to deal with it. All these wrongs have to be righted. And Jesus says, I'll take it. I'll take it from you and I'll take it to the cross. He takes all that stuff that's responsible for our shame and he pays the price for it. Listen to this from Hebrews chapter 12. It says, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Do you know why Jesus went to that cross? Do you know why he hung on that cross? Because he wanted to deal with the junk that's even responsible for your shame. He's not just taking the little sins. He's not just taking the little hurts and the little pains and the, the teeny little brokenness. He doesn't want the faux vulnerability part of you. He wants the deepest 
parts of the things that hold you back and prevent you from becoming the person God wants you to be. He wants to take those on. He wants to absorb those into himself and he wants to annihilate them and deal with them on the cross. You see, that cross, that cross is way too small. That cross is huge. Look at that cross. And now think for a moment about the place of your greatest shame. Think about that stuff that you haven't told too many people, if anybody. That stuff that you have a hard time even forgiving yourself for and you wonder, could God even ever forgive me? Here's the question. Do you believe that cross is bigger than your shame? Because here's what the scriptures say. It is. It's been dealt with. Jesus wants to take it from you. He wants to deal with your shame. You see, friends... It's so wonderful. The cross is so amazing. It's so enormous because there's a wonderful quote by Tim Keller. He says, the cross is amazing because the cross shows us that there is more brokenness and sin and flaw in this world and in us than we ever dared believe. And yet, at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted by God than we ever dared hope. You see, if, if secrecy and silence feed shame, Brene Brown says the other thing that feeds shame, you know what it is? Three things feed shame, she says, secrecy, silence, and judgment. You take shame and you put it in an environment where there's judgment and it will just thrive. That's why the grace and the forgiveness of the cross is a shame killer. You see, the cross speaks right into your shame and says, You say you're unworthy. You don't think that you're worthy of love and acceptance. Let me tell you how worthy you are. Let me tell you how accepted you are. Let me show you. Let me demonstrate to you just how lovable you are. You are so loved. You are so worthy. You are so accepted that I'll send my one and only son to earth to die on a cross on your behalf. I'll give up my one and only son. I will give my own life. That's how loved you are. That's how worthy you are. Do not let shame lie to you anymore. It's been overthrown. The cross has defeated it. It has no power over you. Bring it to the foot of the cross. Don't bury it. Don't pretend it's not there. It won't work. But you bring it to Jesus, and it'll die. It'll die with him on the cross. It'll die with a God who says, I love you more than you can even possibly fathom, than you can even possibly realize. My love for you is great. See, the gospel, friends, is so powerful because it frees us now to live not motivated by shame and guilt with the sense we have to prove ourselves, but to live from a place of we are loved and accepted and we've been proven and we've been forgiven and now I'm free to, be, to offer that same grace, that same forgiveness to others. Remember how shame creates self-loathing in people who are then critical of other people? That's what religion does. Religion says, you better earn it before God. And so those people out there, they better earn it too. You see, Jesus says, I've freely given you God's grace and love and acceptance. And now you're free to offer that to the world. See, they look the same on the outside. They both look whitewashed on the outside. But on the inside, they're very different. And to people in the world, they smell a lot different too. People in this world can sniff out religion in a moment. But a relationship with Christ, there's something sweet smelling about that. So friends, let me ask you this. Are you carrying any shame today? 
And you're saying that you need to lay at the foot of the cross. Most of the time at this point in our service, we'd take communion. And I'd say, bring that shame up and lay it on the table. Today, we're going to take communion in our hearts. It's going to be a really sanitized version of communion. But the power of the cross is still there and it's still the same. To bring even your, your greatest place of shame and to say, God, do you really love me this much? Do you really forgive me? His answer is, I do. And I've proven it. I proved it to you on the cross. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I, I'm going to pray right now for people who are tempted in this space to put on a veneer of success or perfection or even religiosity in order to cover up their shame. Lord, I pray that there would be freedom to let those walls down, to take those masks off in this place in your church. I'm praying, Lord, for people to to find, and not just accidentally, but to intentionally find safe spaces and safe people with whom they can be real and vulnerable. I'm praying that those environments will be just bathed in authenticity, but also in grace and mercy and empathy. There'll be so much acceptance and love. Your acceptance and love would pour out into the relationships of our church. I'm praying for that, Lord. I'm, I'm praying that we would reject this sense of doing sort of half-hearted community and calling it fellowship, God. We speak out against that here, and we ask you, Holy Spirit, to call us into something more, into something deeper, into something more life-changing and transforming. Help us to live in light of your cross, to live in light of your grace and your mercy, that we would feel emboldened and empowered and that you would give us the courage to be the people that you're calling us to be. Vulnerable, real, authentic people who create environments where people can be vulnerable and real and authentic. That's our prayer, Jesus. We love you. We thank you. We need you. And now we sing these songs in response to you as we worship. And we pray it all in Christ's name. Amen.